This morning as we uh, turn to the Word of God, I do want to ask if you would turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, but we'll begin with chapter 4. So wait a minute, Robert, it says we're only reading two verses this morning. Uh, That's right, we are only reading two verses, but we need to, in the fashion that God intended, to understand His Word in context. Um, I have talked with people who have asked me, uh, how do I approach uh, putting together a sermon? And many times uh, pastors are tempted to take an idea or a problem and then find a scripture to fit that problem. So instead of going to the text first and then learning what God's word says, um, there's a temptation for pastors to look at a problem that happens in life and then go to the scriptures and try to find something that fits the context. And that's not exactly what we believe as Presbyterians is a good way to understand the Bible. We believe that God gave us his word and it's given in a context. So, for instance, Matthew is a gospel. What does that mean? Well, a gospel is a form of literature that was only produced during the time of the apostles once Jesus was resurrected. There is no other kind of literature that represents a gospel. Only these four that are in the Bible. And they talk about Jesus' life, but they are not necessarily written to be exactly chronological in the history of Jesus' life. Their purpose is for you to hear who Jesus says he is, to understand his teaching and apply it appropriately to your life, and then to put your faith in what he did for you in the cross and that God's approval was in raising him from the dead and that putting him in all authority and power. And so as we look at the gospel of Matthew, it's written by Matthew who was a tax collector. He was a fiend. He was a cheat, a liar, a schemer. He made his money by extorting from people, by charging them more than what he would have to pay the Roman government in collecting taxes. Tax collectors were notoriously bad people. They were not the kind of people you invited to supper or wanted your children to marry their families. They were horrible people. And yet, Matthew was one of the ones Jesus called to be his disciple, which gives me great hope for my own life. What about you? And then, as you think about Matthew and the gospel, the way he's written his gospel is a way for us to understand the teaching that Jesus gives in context and importance of understanding what he's teaching. And so I've talked to, Ken Belk tells me he does this, but I've talked to people who go in, when they get a new book, they read the last chapter of the book so that if they they start the book and don't finish it, they at least know how the ending happened. Um, pray Pray for people like that, would you? But the most important thing I can tell you is, is that the gospel is written for this reason, that you would abandon your life of sin and trust and follow Jesus Christ. Amen? In chapter 4, as we begin to look at God's word this morning, you're going to see some things that are important as we understand the context of the Beatitudes. When Matthew's writing his gospel, he first begins to show us how Jesus was tempted by Satan. And so as he was tempted by Satan, he was driven into the wilderness. And in that temptation, he was truly tempted with all severe 
kinds of thoughts and ideas and attitudes. And so he overcame that temptation because he put his trust in God, not in Satan. And so in light of that, the thing I would like for you to contemplate is that Matthew does this because he wants you to understand that Jesus has been tempted in every way that you have, but he was without sin. Even though he never sinned, he knows what it's like when you are tempted. So that when you are tempted, you go to someone in prayer who knows exactly the embarrassment and shame and overwhelming desires you feel. He knows every one of them. Not only that, he goes on to say in chapter 4 that when John the Baptist, who was the announcer that Jesus was coming, the one who was going to prepare his coming, when he was arrested, Jesus changed his locale of where he was going to begin to minister. And in that light of that, he went to a region called Galilee. Now you can see from the map above my head there are different shades of color. Well, the reason those colors are there is it represents the different areas where Rome had divided that area of the Middle East into certain places to be ruled by certain governors. And so the governor in Galilee was much different than the governor in Judea. And so when Jesus began his ministry, Matthew wants us to understand that he began it in a place where there were both Gentiles and Jews. The Jews believed they were right with God because they were born of Abraham, they were descended from him, and they believed that they were right with God because they had the law of God. And so they were very prideful people. They believed the way you were right with God was by obeying God's law and worshiping him. The Gentiles, they didn't know who God was. They knew who the Jews said he was, but they themselves still had great darkness in their hearts concerning what is the truth of who God really is? You remember the Samaritan woman Jesus saw at the well, remember? When he confronted her and her question was, well, I, I want to know, where are we supposed to worship? Where are we supposed to worship God? And Jesus said, there's coming a day when you won't go to the mountains or to Jerusalem. That's when, and she says, that's when Messiah will come. By the way, there's a new movie out coming out called The Chosen. It looks to be very promising, very powerful. The most amazing thing that I can tell you in looking at this particular passage is chapter 4 is that, John, is that Matthew wants to make sure you understand that this was a real place that Jesus ministered in, dealing with real people and their problems. And so as he was in Galilee, he did three things. He began to preach the message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, well, what does that mean? Well, repent means turn from your sins and turn back to God. And then the kingdom of God was something everyone was looking forward to. It would be a time where God would establish justice and righteousness on the face of the earth, that lying and scheming and sin would no longer reign. And so everyone was hoping for that day. And then fourthly, Matthew wants us to understand before we get to the Sermon on the Mount that when Jesus was preaching throughout the area of Galilee, he was actually doing three things. He was teaching people about who God is. He was proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And he was healing the sick. Now of those three, which do you think people sought out Jesus for the most? 
the healing. Which tells me that Matthew wants us to understand that many people sought out Jesus not for his teaching or his proclamation of the kingdom because selfishly they wanted Jesus to solve their physical problems and never deal with their spiritual problems. And that is a dangerous place for anyone to be. To want to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, take care of my physical needs and never be confronted by Christ over your spiritual needs. That is a dangerous place to be. And because of this preaching and teaching and healing that he did, it brought forth at the end of chapter 4 this overwhelming mass of people who began to come from all over Syria, all over the region beyond Galilee, all over the place. People were crowding Jesus because they were seeking him for what he was able to do in that region, which is preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people. And so in those ways, we are understanding the beginning of chapter 5 in verse 1. And in the custom of our Reformed faith, would you stand as we read these scriptures? I want to invite you, since it's such a short passage, would you read it with me as we read together? Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed. This is the word of God. Please be seated. When you and I begin to think of this passage, there are a couple of things that often I just find so comical when you look at paintings that have been done on the Sermon on the Mount. Almost every painting I've ever seen that deals with the Beatitudes or Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, which goes really from chapter 5 of Matthew all the way almost to chapter 8, that's the whole sermon. One of the things that's interesting is that we're told by the, by the scriptures that this was the kind of, Jesus, uh, Jesus, the kind of sermon Jesus was proclaiming. What that means is what we have in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is a distillation of what Jesus taught, not just in Galilee, but wherever he went. So it would be like, um, it would be like a, 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 one, a one preacher with one sermon, you know, the, the one preacher with one sermon joke, you know. Um, I was talking with someone this past week who was telling me that they always uh, have a sermon in their pocket. So if they're asked to preach, they, they can preach that Sunday if they go to a, a, a church that they're, they're friends with the pastor. Just like Jesse Garman back there. He's got a sermon in his pocket right now, don't you, Jesse? You got one there? Jesse's been a faithful pastor for a number of years. And so the, the going joke is that a preacher is about as good as one sermon. Right? Well, here's the news about Jesus. Jesus only had one message. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. I don't know how, I don't know how you dress that up. I don't know how you put illustrations around it. I don't know how you amplify it. But it was the message that Jesus gave. And it began to resonate in people's lives in such powerful ways that they began to be attracted to him because this kingdom they yearned for. But notice when the crowds pressed on Jesus, he did something that was really kind of interesting. He withdrew and began to teach them. Which tells me something very interesting about the passage as Matthew's unfolding this. The teaching is meant for the disciples. 
And I would suggest that it's more than just the 12 who follow Jesus. In other words, the teaching that Jesus gives is going to be heard by everyone, but it will not have effect in everyone's life. And so as the crowds began to press upon him, Jesus went up a hill. And in Galilee, when you go up a hill, it, literally the Sea of Galilee is below you. It's absolutely beautiful. When we were there in the city of Capernaum in 1994, 1995, yeah, when we were there in that, that winter, January season, we were there and we witnessed the power of that place because you could actually stand on top of that slope going down to the Sea of Galilee and people below you, you could hear every word you spoke as you spoke from the top of the hill. You didn't have any need for a microphone. The other thing that was interesting is as, as that was happening, Jesus not only went up the hill to be on top of the hill, he sat down. Well, why is that so important? Because in that day, the teacher was given the honor of sitting down. Why? Because it was a sign of his authority. Think of a professor when you go to Davidson College and you talk to a professor of English. Well, what is that? That's a chair that is given and money endowed to support that particular position. Well, it's also a sign of his authority to teach English. And so as Jesus is sitting down as a rabbi, he is, he is taking upon himself, not as someone who is part of the, the elite that serve in the temple or teach the laws with the Pharisees, he is taking on his own authority and sitting down before these people and saying, I have authority to teach you, and now I'm going to sit and tell you exactly what you need to know. And in doing that, the people stood. Now, we got this backwards, don't we? I'm standing as the teacher, and you're sitting. And you're saying, well, Robert, these pews are so uncomfortable, you come and sit in them and we'll stand, right? There are some times you feel that way. But here's the importance of this. It's not whether you're sitting or standing. The question is, do you understand what's being spoken? Do you? We're in a time where in Christianity, people go to church and they get all kinds of information the question is, do you leave knowing the Bible better than when you came? Because that is the purpose of preaching. Do you know the scriptures? Do you know God any better than when you came? And so as Jesus is teaching, he's beginning that process of revealing who God is to them. And in doing so, he gives them the essence of his teaching. The essence of his teaching. Now, I love that because... I, I'm not one of these guys who likes some of the theological books that are written. Some of these books are so thick and so f full of all kinds of illusions. You could, you could, if you had a, if you, well, honestly, if you took them out to Lake Norman and threw them into the water, it'd dry up the whole lake. They're that dry. They just, they don't have any power. They don't have it because it's all doctrine and it's, it's without any kind of understanding of the need of the spirit. There are many books like that. Jesus' teaching was never that way. When Jesus taught as he was sitting before that crowd, when he spoke, it was like they were thirsty and they were sponges and everything he said, they just absorbed and meditated upon and wanted to know more. And it began to, to cause them to hunger and thirst for them. Amazing, isn't it? You know, one of the signs that you are born of God is that you hunger for the scripture. That's one of the signs. I mean, if you're not reading the Bible, if it's not important to you, you better ask yourself, do I really know who God is? Do I really understand what Christ has done for me? Or have I just 
become cold in it? Have I allowed some sin to block or blur my, my heart and cause calluses in me where I just don't even care anymore? That can happen to a Christian. And so as Jesus was sitting down and began teaching, the most amazing thing is the Bible says, at least in our, our translation, is that he sat and he began to teach. That's really not a good translation of that passage. The better translation is in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it says he opened his mouth and he taught them. Why does it do that? It seems to be kind of saying two, two, two things at once, doesn't it? And the answer is, yeah, it is. It's exactly right. Because in the Bible, when you see things repeated, it's for emphasis. It's to make you aware this is important. And so as Jesus is opening his mouth and he's teaching, he is, he is literally using what the Greeks called a, a phonetic way of speaking in such a way that he was going to pass on to them some oracles, some intimate teachings about God that they will not find in any other place. Wow. Remember I asked you the question when Jesus was preaching and he was proclaiming the kingdom and he was healing the sick and I said, which one of those three do you think people sought Jesus for? Most of you said healing. I think so too. And I think when he began teaching, the people who were only seeking him to be healed became impatient with him and left or just simply turned out. But the people who were listening and being changed by that. They were the ones who Matthew records as the, the disciples. What do I mean? Well, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's what the Bible says. Our faith in God comes by hearing the gospel, hearing the word of God preached, and then somehow some miraculous thing happens. We come to understand this work of the cross, and we ask God to forgive our sins and to cleanse us and give us a new heart fit for, for heaven. And at that point, we are saved. But there's another part of God's word that is a grace that many times we overlook, and that is that when we read God's word, it has a transforming grace in our hearts. Even after we are converted and we, we follow Christ, when we open the Bible and we read it and we talk with God about what we're reading, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts in such ways that he, he begins to enable us to understand deeper truths of the Scripture, the things that we would normally miss. How many times, let me give you an example, how many times have you read a passage and you've read that and you think, oh yeah, I've read that, and then you read it again and you go, wow, I didn't see that before. You ever done that? That's what I'm talking about, this enabling grace of God to, to open God's word to our heart in such ways that we see things we didn't see before. And so the point of this oracle, the point of this whole business of Jesus teaching people is that they would be drawn to him, not because they wanted healing, they would be drawn to him because they were hungry and thirsty for something that only Jesus could give them in the teaching of his word. And so it wasn't just ethical teaching. There are many people who literally You okay back there, Robin? Okay. Uh, there are there are literally there are literally numbers of people who look at Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and think Jesus is just talking about ethics. He's not talking about ethics. He's talking about something much deeper. 
Let me give you a, a quote. T.W. Manson, a commentator, says, to divorce the moral teaching of Jesus from his teaching as a whole is thus to make it practically useless. It is also to make it thoroughly unintelligible. For all the moral precepts of Jesus in the last resort flow from a single principle which is not in and of itself moral, but religious, meaning relating to God. And the understanding of any part of Jesus' ethical teaching demands a grasp of the whole context of what he teaches concerning a relationship with God. Some of you are saying, okay, Robert, where are you going with this? Are you with me so far? Are you there? If Jesus is taking the time to teach people, his teaching is not to entertain you. It is to transform you. When I look at our country right now, would you say our country is being transformed by the gospel? Why? Why isn't it? And the answer, I think, is because no one pays attention to the words of Christ anymore. I was reading to my total heartbreak at the Methodist Church, third largest denomination in the world, is now being divided over doctrines. And some are saying, we don't believe this anymore. And yet it is exactly what the Bible teaches. And so now a whole other denomination will be born because of a split over an issue of whether sexuality should be within marriage or not. And it goes much deeper than this. It's challenging, isn't it? And so when you and I begin to think about this Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Matthew wants you to see from chapter 4 as we dive into chapter 5 is that what we're going to get in chapter 5 is a summary of the essence of Jesus' teaching. And so it ought to be something you seriously consider meditating upon the next two months. It ought to be something that causes you to reflect very deeply whether you really... Excuse me, whether you really understand who Jesus is and what he proclaimed or not. Otherwise, you're just playing games with yourself and with God. <clears throat> the last part of the verse we read this morning, thank you. The last part of the verse we read this morning was when Jesus says to them and he begins his teaching, he begins with the word, blessed. Interestingly enough, that word in the Greek is makarios, and it's not easily translated into English. There really isn't a good connotated word that you can say is an equal of what Jesus says. Blessed is Johnny. Blessed is Lou. What, what does that mean? And so many people have said, well, we use the word blessed because it carries the connotation of, of a well-being or, or feeling something uh, positive. Uh, the only problem with that is blessing has a connotation of its own that really doesn't match what Jesus was speaking in his day. Um, for instance, I, I grew up in the South, and whenever someone was doing something real stupid, some of the ladies in church would look at each other and go, well, bless his heart, right? Uh, that, that whole connotation doesn't fit anymore. And so when we see the word blessed, we really don't understand what he means. But another word is happy. I've actually seen pastors who've tried to teach this, that they have used the word happy as a way of saying that Jesus wants everyone to be happy. And so if you follow this teaching that he gives, you'll be happy. And we're going to call them the be happy attitudes, right? And, and it kind of reminds me of those people with plastic smiles on their faces that never really have any problems, you know? And I'm thinking that, that connotation doesn't fit either because... 
Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, how can you mourn and be happy at the same time? You, you see the context there is really kind of confusing. And then you have maybe a better word, fortunate. Fortunate are you that you see this. Fortunate. And the only problem with that is we equate that with luck. It's kind of like playing the lottery. By the way, have you done that this week? Don't tell me. The most amazing thing to me about this is that this word, makarios, is best understood, at least in our colloquial today, is congratulations. You got it. Congratulations. You say, well, how does that work out? Well, please notice that as we study the Beatitudes, as we get into them, these Beatitudes are basically descriptions and commendations of the good life. Isn't that something? The good life. Now, how many of y'all want the good life? Right? We see it on, on, on I think it's on, 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 on shirts, on, on kind of apparel. Uh, there's, a, there's a life is good kind of apparel that's out. Everyone wants a good life, don't you? And so when we think of, um, when we think of the ways in which people try to have a good life, what do people say? Well, if I win a million dollars and I, you know, I win the lottery and, and my kids grow up and they turn out clean and everything, then I have the good life. Is that the good life? That you have all the money you need? Or your family turns out to be okay? Is that the good life? You know, I've talked to somebody who says, man, it's, good. it's a good life if I just wake up in the morning. It's, it's, it really can be a matter of personal, uh, personal preference in some ways when we think about this. Here's what Jesus says. He says the good life is when you come to that point that you get it, that you understand why I came. How do I know that? Well, look at what Jesus told Matthew in chapter 16, verse 17. When Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're, you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. But who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's at that point that Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, Makarios, Makarios, blessed are you. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But the Father did. Say, so Robert, what's the point? Here it is. You could come over the next two months. You could read these passages every day for the next eight weeks. And there's a real possibility you might miss it. You might miss the good life. Jesus said, I have come to into this world to give you abundant life. And the scariest part of what Matthew is teaching us this morning is that there is a real possibility that you could just simply walk out of here and miss it.
That's scary. Well, how do I not miss it? Well, the Bible says that God speaks to us through his word. And so over the next four, five, six, eight weeks, open chapter five and begin to ask God, God, help me understand what Jesus says is the good life, the life he came to give me. I don't want to miss it. And he will. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we think about uh, what it means to be a Christian, many of us understand that term because our parents were Christians and we were raised in the church and born to be uh, people who profess Jesus as Christ. It's not very far from how people grew up to be Jewish. They were born in a Jewish family and raised to know the Torah, the Old Testament. Even today that happens. There is a, a group of people that are still existent today by your grace and mercy who call themselves Jews. And yet they are without understanding concerning the salvation of God. And we tell or told by the Paul in his preaching that the gospel is meant both for the Jew and the Gentile because all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way that we can have the good life is by being restored to a life where I know God and I know the one he has sent. And so as we study this passage, as we begin to think about the warnings that Matthew gives us along the way, there's also great encouragement the encouragement is that just as there is an opportunity that I might miss it, there's also the great opportunity I will get it. And I will begin to appropriate what Christ came to give eternal life. And for that reason, I pray, O oh Father, bless our study and bless us as a church because we are living in deceptive days where people do what's right in their own eyes in the name of finding the good life. And for that deception, we ask to be delivered. We pray it in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together.